Hello everyone, and welcome back to our special mini-series for Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Michael and I have been lucky enough to attend ASCO 2023 this year, both virtually, nocturnally, and spiritually, with our primary goal to break down the salient findings of this groundbreaking conference. For all those left behind, to tend to patients and other such important things, this is the series for you. As always, my charismatic and charming co-host, Dr. Mike Fernando, joins us. Michael, are you ready to break down some adjuvant and neoadjuvant breast cancer trials at lightning speed that always leads to interesting discussion? I am so ready, Josh. Did you want to start our tour de force on early neoadjuvant and adjuvant breast cancer today? I was ready for that question. Yes, I thought you would never ask. The first trial I'm going to talk about is Monarchy. You would have heard this before, but it's the famed phase three trial looking at adding adjuvant abemocyclib plus endocrine therapy in a hormone receptor positive, node positive, high risk, early breast cancer patients. Node positive breast cancer patients have up to a 30% five-year risk of recurrence. Published data shows an invasive disease-free hazard ratio of 0.664, favoring a bemocyclib combination with a 34% reduction in the risk of developing an event like cancer. And also a distance relapse-free survival also confirms a 34% reduction in the risk of developing this event. So we know it works. The question that's, raised, a, that's a hell of an event, Josh. It is a hell of an event, right? 34% is significant. So many events to talk about. This is the event of the year. The question raised at ASCO is how older patients tolerate abemocyclib and whether it is still efficacious. This was a subgroup analysis. Patients were randomized one-to-one to the combination arm of endocrine therapy and abemocyclib or just endocrine therapy and followed up for eight years with endocrine therapy after completing two years of adjuvant abemocyclic. 850 patients were over the age of 65 in the study and 4,500 were under the age of 65. Of note, most cancers in the States and across the board are diagnosed over the age of 60, so that's about 60 to 70%, which is an important question to ask. With this cohort of patients, over 50% of those over the age of 65 had four or more comorbidities versus 33% of under the age of 65. Adverse events showed similar rates of diarrhea, fatigue, neutropenia, and thromboembolism between the groups. More dose reductions were identified in the over 65 age bracket and discontinuation was significantly higher at 38% versus 15% in the under 65. Despite this, the invasive disease-free survival rates were similar across RDI, which stands for relative dose intensity. In English, Different dose schedulings or different dose intensities, do you have the same outcome when looking at that? And the answer is yes. So it was 87.1 versus 86.4 versus 83.7% in the lowest RDI group, which is a dose reduction scale, really. Efficacy comparing these two groups showed a hazard ratio of 0.644 for the under 65 and 0.722 for the over 65 with a p-value of 0.549. So that was not statistically significant, meaning efficacy is similar between the two agents, which is wonderful. The same was noted for distant relapse-free survival. So the conclusion to this study, and this is pivotal for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's looking at an age cohort that we all treat, and no one seems to really look at the elderly population enough. And it shows that adjuvant and 
plus endocrine therapy adds clinically meaningful risk reduction in invasive disease-free survival and distant relapse-free survival across age brackets, which means it's a worthwhile addition to your patient if they're over the age of 60. It's a very important question to be asked. And Josh, I have one very important question to ask of you, which is, do you have any insight on why the discontinuation rate was so much higher in the more elderly patients greater than 65 years old than those who are younger? Because it's quite a stark difference that has implications on treatment. A phenomenal question um, from the corner of Dr. Michael Fernando. (laughs) Thank you for asking that. It's actually really difficult from the slides and from the talk, they kind of brushed over it. But there was a there was a little sentence on one of the slides that said patients over the age of 75 had high toxicity, including higher levels of grade two to grade three fatigue. And I wonder whether potential duration of treatment and the older you are, the more likely you are, you're going to not tolerate this treatment. So although across the board, there were similar levels, there's probably outliers that might influence the discontinuation rate. I guess as well, if you are older, then your ability to to tolerate the same degree of toxicity may be lower as well. Um, And abemocyclib we know has issues with diarrhea, fatigue. So something that I'm sure will be answered in later publications, as well as when we get a bit more clinical experience using Abema. You hit the nail on the head. I think we need more time to really appreciate the longitudinal impacts of CDK4-6 inhibitors on this cohort of patients. And of course, you've got ribocyclid as well, which is in a similar cohort. So if you had a choice that's, between Ribo and Abema, it's going to be a difficult conversation. Well, that's a hell of a segue, Josh, because the next study that we're wanting to discuss is the primary results from the Phase 3 Natalie trial coming hot on Monarchy's heels. Natalie is a very similar study to the other studies in this group of adjuvant treatment with the AI and CDK4-6 Monarchy being obviously the most pertinent at this point. We know that this was a positive study based on a press release earlier this year, and uh, it's been a good couple of years for ribocyclic because we know that in the metastatic setting, it also had an overall survival benefit, which differentiated it from palbocyclic. So a good year was being had by all ribocyclic patients. That's a spoiler alert, Michael. And poor palbocyclic has been relegated to the corners of the CDK46 sphere and probably not its fault, rather a study design limitation. Absolutely. But uh, that's a whole other podcast, I think. Natalie is similar to Monarch E, and the background is similar as well. Recurrence in early breast cancer of high-risk biology is a significant problem both in the node-positive and the node-negative space. Natalie was a phase 3 trial that investigated ribocyclid plus an aromatase inhibitor versus the aromatase inhibitor alone, with ribocyclid being given for three years in total, and that will come up later. Patients were randomized one-to-one to each arm, and the primary endpoint was disease-free survival, as well as a host of secondary endpoints, including recurrence-free survival, overall survival, safety, and tolerability. Patients who were enrolled were those with an anatomical stage 2A. Those patients were node negative with a grade 2 histopathology and high-risk features such as elevated key 67, high predictive scores on a tool such as Oncotype DX, or high risk via genetic profiling, or patients with nodal involvement. 
Patients with stage 2B and stage 3 disease were also included. So these are probably, I'm not going to call them the cream of the crop, Josh, whatever the opposite of uh, cream of the cream of the crop is, the patients who are at high risk of developing recurrence. Michael, no one wants to be cream of the crop when it comes to high risk, high risk for cancer recurrence. No, it's like saying the best at, I don't know, something terrible. I'll work on that metaphor and get back to you. It is notable to say that the ribocyclob dose was lower than is commonly used. It was 400 milligrams versus the standard 600 milligrams. Though I will say, Josh, that in clinical practice, 600 milligrams is frequently poorly tolerated. And there are some practitioners that are basically pretty much automatically starting at 400 milligrams in that they will have patients will have one cycle of 600 and at the slightest risk of toxicity and with ribocyclob that includes cardiovascular toxicity hematological toxicity also very common they're dropping down to 400 without very much fanfare and maybe this trial will have a look to see if it's still efficacious maybe listen on and you will find out <laughs> patients were enrolled and randomized as we have said, one-to-one with ribocyclib plus a aromatase inhibitor versus an aromatase inhibitor alone. Baseline characteristics were balanced across the two groups. It is notable that a majority of patients had stage 3 disease. A majority of patients were N1 in terms of a nodal stage with a significant proportion averaging about 19-20% across the uh, total cohort having N2 or N3 disease. So we are not cherry picking here, we're picking patients that are very high risk of recurrence. The median follow-up at time of presentation was 34 months. 78% of patients on the interventional arm were still on treatment versus 72% of the aromatase inhibitor alone. And this, I think, speaks to a, a slight issue with all of these trials is the quality of treatment with AIs alone in the adjuvant space. It's still really good. Discontinuation in the intervention arm was most common due to patient or physician decision, followed by relapse at 6% and adverse events at 5%, which is unusual because in most of these studies, the most common reason for discontinuation is progressive disease or disease relapse. So that is a positive finding. Coming to the results now, ribocyclob achieved a highly significant invasive disease-free survival benefit with a hazard ratio of 0748 and a three-year invasive disease-free survival rate of 90.4%, compared to 87.1% with the AI alone. The risk reduction of invasive disease recurrence was 25%. Michael, the benefit was seen predominantly in the stage three cohort of the analysis when you go to the invasive disease-free survival. What are your thoughts with respect to the stage two and node negative disease? I'm so glad you brought that up, Josh because it gives me a chance to bring up the forest plot. So in terms of patients with stage 2 disease and N0 disease, the hazard ratio was still positive. For stage 2 disease, the hazard ratio was 0.76. For no negative disease, it was 0.63. The numbers in these two groups were fairly small. 49 and 65% in the two groups were stage 2. 49 patients in the combination cohort and 65 patients in the AI alone cohort had stage 2 disease and 16 patients in the combination cohort and 28 patients in the control cohort were node negative. So small numbers, that is the first thing you've got to say. However, 
Despite the small numbers and despite the positive hazard ratios, the confidence interval did cross one. And again, I think this comes back to how good aromatase inhibitors are as a baseline treatment because the benefit is still relatively small and you're probably getting less benefit and you're probably needing less intense treatment if you have a lower risk disease. In terms of three-year distant disease-free survival, again, the ribocyclib arm came out on top with a three-year distant disease-free survival rate of 90.8 versus 88.6%, with a p-value of 0.0017 and a hazard ratio of 0.739, which correlates to a 26% reduction in risk. A trend for noted overall survival improvement was again seen, but it's not yet significant. We're dealing with very small numbers of overall survival events. This is one of those Kaplan-Meier curves where there are the two curves and they're both right at the top of the graph. So it will probably be quite a while before we have any overall survival data that is deemed uh, statistically significant. Toxicities included grade three or higher neutropenia to 43.8%, with any grade neutropenia being present in 62% with an associated number of QT prolongations that were higher in the ribocyclid group. Interstitial lung disease was also seen in the ribocyclid arm, but again, in low numbers. A quarter of patients receiving ribocyclid demonstrated liver dysfunction. Of note, the 400 milligram dose of ribocyclid did show better uh, rates of neutropenia than in Mona Lisa, specifically 62 versus 73%. And in Mona Lisa, they used 600 milligrams of ribocyclid. So important that the 400 milligram may not compromise on efficacy, but it might improve the tolerability. Further to that comparison, the median progression-free survival was similar between 400 and 600. Again, these are cross-trial comparisons, so taken with a grain of salt. That's what we always say. The overall response rate was slightly lower in the uh, 400 milligram group here in Natalie, 47.5 versus 56.2% in the Mona Lisa trial. However, the majority of patients on Natalie have not yet completed their three-year course of treatment. And so it is reassuring that the overall rates of recurrence-free survival, invasive disease-free survival, and distant disease-free survival are so robust. Nevertheless, as we always say with these trials, longer follow-up is needed because we are not yet at the stage where we can say that despite the higher rates of toxicity, despite the higher intensity of treatment, the addition of ribocyclib yet conveys a overall survival benefit. So Natalie definitely one to keep an eye on. I actually still have patients participating in Natalie at my centre, so it is something that will definitely be a standing ovation worthy study, I'm sure, in the coming years. And a morale booster for all those still on adjuvant ribocyclic, knowing that they're on a trial, which is doing what it should be doing. Absolutely. I can't imagine what it would be like to be on a study and then hearing that it doesn't work. Exactly. Very difficult conversation for everyone around. Moving on, we will talk about the FERGAIN study. The FERGAIN study was a three-year invasive disease-free survival study of the strategy-based, sounds like a computer game or like a board game, randomized phase two FERGAIN trial evaluating chemotherapy de-escalation 
in human epidermal growth factor receptor to positive breast cancer. So essentially- It's a real-time strategy game trial. Oh my God, and a terrible name. But realistically, we're looking at if you exclude chemotherapy, do you have the same outcomes in HER2 positive early breast cancers? And Josh, I hope it's not a Fugazi. Fugazi. Uh, the the trial, there were two cohorts. There was a group A and group B. It was randomized one to four, which was the standard of care, which is the TCHP, Michael. So that's the trastuzumab, pertuzumab, carboplatin, and docetaxel. So this was the standard of care, which was the docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab. That was given for two cycles or you're randomized to have just the trastuzumab and pertuzumab, which is the HER2 agents for two cycles. You then had a PET. You were, again, stratified to have a response or no response in the HER2 therapy. And if you responded, you continued with six cycles of HER2, then surgery. And if you didn't respond, you had six cycles of chemo and HER2, and then you had surgery. The control arm was your standard of care chemo and HER2 therapy. After surgery, and this is where I don't particularly like that there's an issue with limitation with the trial is that if you had a complete pathological response, you continued 10 cycles of trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And if you didn't have a complete pathological response, you continued with chemo and HER2 therapy. But Michael, in Australia, the standard of care is trastuzumab and tanzine if you don't have a complete pathological response. So I'm already seeing a flag in their study design, but likely it was probably made before TDM1 came to the fore. Potentially. Potentially. Don't know. But potentially is, I guess, the question. During that time, you also had tissue and blood samples as well. You had to have a tumor at least 1.5 centimeters and confirmed her two positive breast cancer stage one to stage three A. Does that sort of make sense? The the randomization of the arms, Michael? Yes, it does, but it helps that I've got the schema in front of me as well. Yeah, I know. It was it took me a couple of reads to be like, what exactly are you doing? Primary endpoints were complete pathological response um, in the pet responders, which is group B. So that's just the HER2 therapy and the three-year invasive disease-free survival. And secondary endpoints, there was a plethora. You wanted to know the IDFS in group A, the long-term outcomes per group, health-related toxicities, quality of life. It goes on. There's about 12 of them. The important inclusion criteria, which I've already mentioned, is that they're excluded of previously given chemotherapy or had anti-HER2 therapy or radiotherapy or endocrine therapy as well. So baseline, most patients had ECOG of zero, stage two, premenopause on about half. What we found, pet responders, so after that first two cycles, pet responders where you saw a a response to the treatment was seen in about 79% of patients or 227, and non-pet responders was about 58 What we saw from the pet responders, the pathological complete response rate was seen in a further 86. So that's about 37% of 38% of patients. So this is the group B without chemotherapy. What they found is that the three-year invasive disease-free rate in the group B was 95.4% with 12 events covering ipsilateral regional invasive breast cancer recurrence and distal recurrence. Three-year invasive disease-free survival rate in the pathological complete response cohort was 98.8%. So what we're seeing is that about a third of patients who only had HER2 therapy got a complete pathological response versus those who had chemo therapy and HER2 therapy or those that started off with just HER2 therapy. So about a third of patients could, the theory could be potentially be de-escalated from having chemotherapy 
and have a good outcome. When you look at adverse events, they are actually quite similar. 100% in group A, which is the chemo HER2 group, then group B was 96.8 and group B without chemotherapy was 95.3. And then if you look at the related adverse events, which is to actual treatment, that drops about 20%. So there's about a 20% reduction in adverse events, which is an important consideration in patients when toxicity is always high with chemotherapy. What they found in the chemotherapy arms, you know, anemia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, without chemotherapy, you saw anemia about 9%. And then the fatigue was less, the diarrhea was less, the nausea was significantly less, the stomatitis was less. So you're, you're getting the summary here. So the conclusion to this study was that it met a primary endpoint of three-year invasive disease-free survival in the group B and no unexpected safety signals were identified. I did have questions for this, Michael, that I wanted to chat to you about. The first being, of those patients who you could de-escalate treatment, they didn't give me more data on what the subtypes were, how big was the tumor, what was the KI-67, like how do I put this into potentially into clinical practice and how do I choose this cohort of patients to de-escalate? That seems to be the biggest issue with this Fergain trial, Josh, I completely agree, is its applicability, not just based on the patient selection. They're putting a lot of weight on the PET scans and the presence or absence of, of disease, which as we know, you know, we're, we're talking about sort of um, micro metastases, which would be far below PET resolution. So a negative PET scan, we see it all the time. It does not necessarily mean a patient is completely free of disease. The other thing as well is that in terms of how this relates to our standard practice, maybe it's different in other countries, um, but uh, unless in Australia, unless the patient can self-fund the use of uh, pertuzumab, it is not routinely used in the preoperative space. As you mentioned, chemotherapy is not used in the adjuvant setting. If they've had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, that's really just not something that's done. And the if the patient does have a pathological complete response, the combination of trastuzumab and pertuzumab is not used. It's just trastuzumab by itself. So in relation to what we normally do, yes, it's docetaxel and carboplatin <laughs> as opposed to AC pack and then trastuzumab, which is what we always use in the HER2 positive space. There's no real use for TC in the HER2 positive early, early breast cancer space. But it's just, I just struggle to see how you're going to sell this to practitioners and patients when we have a really good chemotherapy regimen that we know works, we have backups, we have plan Bs, we have plan Cs now, and not to mention that um, trastuzumab deruxtecan is probably going to come through and take TDM1's lunch money. I just struggle to see how this is going to be applied. This is a more, more research is required or a better explanation for Josh and my, Josh and Michael, but it's an interesting theory. And I think it's something that does need to be pursued. If you can find a marker or something that would direct who doesn't need it, kind of like the Oncotype DX stuff for the hormone receptor positive space, then maybe we could end up having a de-escalation conversation. And it is important to say that de-escalation is a very important goal you know, over-treating cancer is a major problem. If we can find ways to avoid giving treatment to those who are likely not to need it, then that's always a win. But as you say, Josh, a marker, some 
measure, some objective measure to differentiate patients who need it, patients who don't, is required. And one such marker, segue, is ctDNA or circulating tumor DNA, namely Penelope B. Now, ctDNA is another one of those hugely significant or potentially hugely significant developments in oncology. Basically, it involves liquid biopsies, so that is non-invasive, non-tissue biopsies, but blood tests effectively that are analyzed for the presence or absence of circulating tumor DNA, ctDNA. That's what it says on the tin. And in multiple tumor settings, there's emerging evidence in the head and neck space. We know there's evidence in the uh, GI space. In multiple tumor streams, we are looking at ctDNA as a predictor of the risk of recurrence. So it is a very, very promising Um, and very exciting area of study. So it's important to note that this is a subsection of a previously negative trial, which is unfortunate, Um, but the original trial did not use ctDNA. And so this was using an existing cohort to retroactively go back and see if the presence or absence of ctDNA could predict the risk of relapse, which we know was quite high in the original trial. Penelope B specifically was studying palbociclib in the adjuvant setting, but this retro, this retroactive review was querying the use of ctDNA in the selection of adjuvant CDK46. We've talked a lot about CDK46 in the adjuvant setting in this episode, so any markers to add to our clinical histopathological staging, Oncotype DX tools... Uh, would be greatly appreciated in the selection of patients who need it, patients who don't, because we know that patients with lower risk disease, quote unquote, likely to not require CDK46 and get by on aromatase inhibitors alone. The primary endpoint was to assess the potential for ctDNA analysis to predict future clinical relapse of patients who were participating in the Penelope B trial. Was uh, also to assess the potential role of sequential ctDNA analysis, dynamics in assessing further clinical relapse, and assessing whether a full analysis of the baseline sample is indicated to assess whether palbociclib has benefits in ctDNA positive patients. So we know that the overall population of Penelope B didn't benefit from palbociclib. However, if there is a small subset that would, the authors sound like they would like to go back and give it another crack. Of note, the baseline ctDNA detection was 9%, or 7 out of 78 patients. 4% had ctDNA in later samples, and of those detected a baseline, 29% became undetectable in later samples. And this is where it gets interesting. So they had a look at invasive disease-free survival and distant disease-free survival for patients who had ctDNA that was detectable at baseline with a high key 67 and a high pathological uh, tumor size, so T3 or T4 versus T0 to 2. And you look at these hazard ratios and they are quite stark, Josh. So for invasive disease-free survival, let's start there and let's talk about the comparators, which is a high key 67, so greater than 15% versus less than 15%, or a high primary tumor stage, so T3 to 4 versus T0 to 2. The hazard ratios respectively 
and admittedly, these are not specific; these are not statistically significant, but the hazard ratios were 1.9 and 2, respectively. Now, the hazard ratio for ctDNA at baseline, in terms of whether it was detected or whether it's undetected, was statistically significant at 0.0007. It's three zeros there, and the hazard ratio was six. So you are six and a half times more likely to have a invasive disease recurrence if you have ctDNA detected at baseline. Similarly, in terms of of, of distant disease-free survival, the hazard ratio for an elevated key 67 was 1.1. And the hazard ratio for a larger primary tumour was 1.9. Again, not statistically significant with p-values both above 0.2. The hazard ratio for a detected versus undetected ctDNA at baseline was 10.93 with a p-value of less than 0.0001. These initial results, and I'm going to be honest, part of these very dramatic hazard ratios is probably down to the very small numbers, but these initial results are suggestive that ctDNA can be used as a marker to predict the risk of disease recurrence, which is really what all of these markers, key 67 tumor staging, histopathological staging, are geared towards. How likely is the patient in front of you to suffer a, a recurrence of their resected disease? In terms of ctDNA, Dynamics. This is the other interesting part. We know that patients with um, undetected ctDNA at baseline uh, potentially do better in uh, than those patients who have ctDNA detected at baseline. However, if during the treatment course the ctDNA becomes positive, so turns from negative to positive, there is a suggestion here again that patients have a much poorer outcome than those who remain persistently negative. So in terms of the uh, Kaplan-Meier curves, you've got the um, ctDNA positive. They drop like a stone down a well, but the ctDNA negative patients, they sort of trundle along, they slowly drop down, and then you have the subgroup that goes from negative to positive. And again, once they're detected, they tend to drop off as well. So there is a suggestion that not just the presence or absence of ctDNA at baseline, but also how it changes, how it reacts to treatment is indicative of risk of relapse and therefore prognosis response. So in conclusion, the detection of ctDNA following neoadjuvant chemotherapy and surgery is associated with a very high risk of relapse, which suggests limited efficacy of adjuvant endocrine therapy. Now, obviously, the rub here is that in hormone receptor positive breast cancer, it is not standard of care to give neoadjuvant therapy unless you are looking at downstaging a tumour. So that's another limitation in terms of the applicability. The sensitivity of future relapse is is unknown. Obviously, uh, endocrine therapy has this phenomenon of very late relapses of between 7 and 10 years after the initial surgery. We don't know if ctDNA can help us predict that. The response to prior neoadjuvant chemotherapy may reduce the ctDNA detection rates. This was a limitation that the authors uh, posited. And sequential testing does improve the sensitivity of relapse owing to the uh, potential detection of, of 
dynamic changes in the ctDNA level. In terms of approval, um, in America, ctDNA has been improved, but at this point, the jury is very much out as to whether it has any role in deciding adjuvant um, CDK46 use after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So positive first steps, Josh, but the jury is still very much out. But an important question in what will potentially become a piece of diagnostic arsenal for us in the years to come. Yeah, and I think the other thing that is really exciting about ctDNA is that it's very easy to do. If you have the lab set up, it's just a blood test. So there's no invasive biopsies, surgical procedures, and the complications thereof. Brilliant as always, Dr. Fernando. Come back tomorrow as we have another episode of ASCO. It's just raining ASCO at the moment where we talk about... Just in case you weren't sick of us enough. (laughs) CNS tumours we will be talking about. So that's uh, primary brain tumours. Very interesting, an area where lots of research is needed. And it's been a slow and hard progress. But there's some exciting things on the horizon. See you then. Indeed. If you like science, you'll love this next episode. So tune in. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.